Hey, welcome to another edition of Talking Foosball, the Bundesliga show. Your source for all things German football. I am your host, Matt Herman, and this week, like the weekend, we are maniacally swiveling our heads around, wondering what the hell is going on, as the Bundesliga threw up some totally puzzling results on Match Day 20. With me to ponder what all those results mean is Nick Wildhagen. Nick, uh, what was going on in your life when Freiburg last beat Dortmund? Oh gosh, I think we had a garden and on that day I'd, I'd been working all day long and a woman asked how long have the termites been up in these trees and before that someone else said those aren't termites. I mean I think that was what generally was going on on that very day <laughs> in my life. You know, I, I feel like the way that you keep your diary or your journal or your, your account of how you pass your days is sounds like it's a lot different than mine because I don't <laughs> think I can account for May 8th, 2010 in the same way that you can. <laughs> I mean, when, when once a woman comes around and asks you about termites and trees, you remember that stuff for the rest of your life, don't you? Yeah. All right, uh, this week we got, you know, flight delays in Brandenburg. We've got snow days in Ostwestfalen. An evening in Gladbach, which uh, not quite enough derp, 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 and much more. All right, here comes part one of Talking Foosball, the part where we talk about the best of Match Day 20. Sometimes we talk about the best. Sometimes we talk about the not-so-best, you know, when things are really going in a trash-fire direction. Sometimes the best storyline of all in a Talking Foosball episode is, is that of a big team crashing, burning, twisting in the wind, then shooting themselves in the groin. That is pretty much where Borussia Dortmund have ended up in recent weeks. They've taken a paltry four points from their last five games. They're losing ground on the top four week by week. Nick, I, I kind of alluded to the historic nature of this result at the top of the show. The last time that SC Freiburg beat the black and yellow was May 2010. This was a 2-1 loss in Freiburg this week. But, you know, more worryingly to me, it was just how dumb this loss was for Dortmund. I mean, Freiburg created almost nothing going forward and yet were able to beat Bayfell Bay with just two shots from distance. Yeah, it's utterly strange because I think in terms of what I've seen Freiburg do on the pitch, it's probably been one of their most mediocre performance at that also this season. They had an XG of 0.17 to be precise. I mean, 0.17 usually doesn't get you one goal. Oh yeah, it's hard to beat Bielefeld when you do that. Yeah, precisely. So um, getting two out of that is, is spectacularly efficient. And, and the fact that the second goal, that shot from Jonathan Smead, which was sort of like, it looked like he was going to cross it from the edge of the area. Instead, he went for goal. Marvin Hitz was caught off guard and sort of, you know, palmed the ball against the post and it, then it hit him and bounced back into the goal. It was one of the silliest goals that Dortmund have conceded all season long. And um, having said that, it's sort of like a reoccurring theme that Dortmund drop points unnecessarily. It's sort of a reoccurring theme that they do produce the better chances and yeah, they stand empty-handed or go home with a dumb draw. 
it's happening time and time again. And I mean, we were told by the Dortmund leadership that Lucien Favre apparently was the problem after that 5-1 loss against VfB Stuttgart. But, uh, you know, the solution they came up with uh, so far, uh, Edin Terzic, hasn't really shown that he has done an awful lot to turn things around. So um, you have to question the judgment by Michael Zorg and Aki Watzke to, to say that, OK, Lucien Favre has to go. He doesn't connect well with the team. It doesn't work anymore. OK, that's fair enough but then to say okay we bring in Eden Terzic who is this inexperienced guy who um, you know yes he has some good stuff on his CV but he's never proven himself as a head coach at this level any place really and uh, to take that gamble as a club that is looking you know to get into second place at least it's a big gamble and so far you have to say it's failed spectacularly yeah yeah I you know I remember when when Dortmund went ahead and made that move to get rid of Lucien Favre, which had been sort of, I don't know, mooted for months, let's just say, uh, ahead of that time, considering all the disappointments that had happened under his watch uh, at Dortmund. You know, a couple of seasons where it looked like they were title candidates only for it to sort of melt away at, at a critical juncture. So I, I knew where they were coming from, and I wasn't surprised that it happened. But it really continues to rub me the wrong way, to see a team as talented as this, to see a team that is capable of so much, basically just flounder. And I, I, I don't want to lay it all on Edin Terzic's doorstep. I mean, clearly there's got to be some problems with, you know, maybe like squad management or, 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 you know, leadership within the squad. And you cannot, you cannot plan for such a dumb goalkeeping mistake as Marvin Hitz made. Mm. And, and to be fair, the first goal by John, uh, that, that was, uh, you know, a better keeper might have kept it out, but it was not a goalkeeping error that. And, uh, you know, to, to hit the ball that well from pretty much by, with, uh, as he stood still and to hit it this hard and this well is, is quite impressive. So two such isolated match uh, incidents occurring in matches you cannot plan for as a coach. And additionally, Holland had this guilt edge chance in the first half from five yards out, didn't take it. I mean, Eden Terzic, uh, ever since he came in, you, you if you want to be mean to him, uh, you could say that Eden Terzic has managed to do what all Bundesliga coaches have tried to do before. And it's stopped Holland scoring. And, you know, you would have you would have assumed that Holland usually would have tucked that one away. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the, the, it's, it's sort of like, in terms of the performance, Dortmund with the better chances, Dortmund, the superior side, in, when you look at all stats from the XG to the running to ball possession and all that, but in the end, they, they once again stand empty-handed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do want to discuss Freiburg uh, a little bit in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to get to a listener question that uh, Crane Friedman in Boston ha- asks about uh, Marvin Hitz. Um, Crane from Boston? Yeah, Is yeah. Is it Frazier? <laughs> no, well, that's for, he, he moved to Seattle, right? You know, he, he moved on with his life. Let's talk for a moment about Marvin Hitz and, and more broadly about the goalkeeping situation at Dortmund. I mean, you know, there there are a number of people out there. I think Kevin Hatchard, most most uh, notably, I've heard him both on on the Stylecast uh, podcast and elsewhere talk about Dortmund being, you know, a little. I don't know, perhaps foolish not to try and upgrade at the goalkeeper position. This is what Crane Friedman is asking again. I mean, there had been a lot of talk about Roman Berkey not being good enough. Uh, he, of course, got himself hurt. Marvin Hitz has stood in for him. He's looked not really convincing either. What is keeping Dortmund from, from investing in a better goalkeeper? I'm kind of mystified by it as well because 
they they definitely have elite talent in a lot of sections of this squad, but it really just hasn't been there for them. And I, I would say even going back before Berkey, when when Roman Weidenfeller was was you know holding things down, I mean, they don't really seem to put that much value in a like A plus plus goalkeeper. I mean, you may be a little bit harsh on Roman Weidenfeller as he turned himself into a national team keeper. <laughs> I know he he was grandiose. <laughs> He he did play grandiose saison, yes, indeed. Nah, but listen, I think it, I think people are Kevin and and Crane are absolutely spot on here because uh, Roman Berkey, uh, he showed at Freiburg that he can be a decent keeper, a good keeper, but he can be a decent and good keeper for a side like Freiburg. Once you get to Dortmund, you're expected to stand still for 80, 80 minutes, not have an awful lot to do, and then you have to keep out the big chances. And you don't have to make too many errors. And, um, I mean, over the years, Berkey has shown time and time again that he can be susceptible for those, to, to fail at those two measures. And, uh, yes, it's, it's, it's really befuddling that Dortmund haven't really done anything in, in that regard. And, you know, I mean, they have so many young and talented players throughout the entire team. I mean, wouldn't it be only logical after two or three years with Berkey to say, well, who in the world of goalkeeping is around 19 and has a massive upside and is currently playing at a club that probably needs to sell? I mean, there must be someone in this world. Yeah, yeah. I do see this as part of a broader problem uh, within the Bundesliga that when you think about truly elite goalkeepers, and there just aren't very many of them in the world. You know, there are there are guys within the Bundesliga who would be, you know, a significant upgrade on on Roman Berkey at least by current form. But there aren't that many outside of, you know, Manuel Neuer and maybe maybe Peter Gulacci if if that's the kind of goalkeeper you're looking for that you can say have the stature to to go to a big club and sort of become an icon there for over many years. Like goalkeepers that good generally, they either go to Bayern <laughs> Like Neuer did in his day. Of course, it was more complicated for him being a Schalke guy. But, you know, or you go abroad where you can get paid big money, like uh, Tischtegen. And, like, it's, uh, you know, Dortmund's in that stepping stone place where they are all over the pitch, you know. I mean, I see your point trying to find a young guy who's sort of on the on his way up who might, you know, give them three or four years good service before he moves on to, you know, Manchester City or, you know, Atletico Madrid or whatever. But, like... It's hard for Dortmund to get, you know, elite players who aren't just kids on the way up. And that's not necessarily the easiest place to look for goalkeepers because goalkeepers don't tend to sort of become, you know, truly great until they get to their mid to late 20s. Well, I, I think Dortmund has sort of missed that chance on maybe looking into a couple of guys when they were younger. I mean, Timo Horn. His career sort of stagnated at Cologne, and I think he's actually gradually gotten worse over the years, despite being in that sort of age bracket where he should be performing at his best right now as a goalkeeper. So, I mean, there have been chances to look into even German keepers who had the sort of potential to become national team players or, you know, goalkeeping, decent goalkeepers at, a, you know, maybe not a world-class level, but an internationally good level, and, and Dortmund did decide against signing any of these guys and uh, I mean you, you would never know how Tim Horn's career for instance would have panned out if Dortmund looked at him when he was 20-21 and said okay we're gonna we're gonna sign this guy 
Yeah, I take your point. I take your point. May, you know, maybe maybe there's a second chance for him there. I mean, there there are still there are a few you know youngish German keepers who might. I mean, Gregor Kobel springs to mind. Stuttgart's keeper, who you know, this is his first year in the Bundesliga as a you know sort of a undisputed number one, and he's he's looked quite good. I don't know if you know he's at all interested in moving within the Bundesliga, but um, I guess there's options out there. All right, let's switch gears and talk about uh, SC Freiburg. They were, of course, the winners in this game. And and we probably do have to hand it to Christian Streich, as, as we often do, because this is one of the few milestones that he still had in his long-running Freiburg career. He had never beaten Borussia Dortmund in his years there. Kind of blows my mind. But, you know, it only stands to reason and that he didn't take over there until the 2010-2011 uh, the, the season. So, you know, here we are. <laughs> Indeed. Well, for Freiburg, this was actually an even bigger milestone in itself because it was the 700 sure. match yeah. in the Bundesliga. And uh, Streich, he is uh, up to... Uh, he's closing in on 300 matches. And obviously, the, the guy who's been... The longest at the club is Volker Finke, who's over 300 matches in the Bundesliga. So Streich obviously needs a couple more seasons in charge of the team in the Bundesliga before he breaks that record too. And I think that keeps him going as well. And um, having said that, uh, Christian Streich has actually the best points per game average of any Freiburg coach in, in the club's history in the Bundesliga. His, his points per game average is 1.26. But I mean, you have to, if you look back on those 700 matches and you know, almost 20 years of Bundesliga football since 1993. You have to hand it to Freiburg. Um, their talent production has been tremendous. There have been so many national team players that have been through their youth ranks. Uh, there have been, I mean, whenever, as we said last week, whenever there are two Bundesliga sides meeting, there's at least one or two guys on the pitch who have been at Freiburg at one point in their career. And additionally, doing all that with span, with by being always, always, always among those sites spending the least amount of cash on player wages is simply mind-blowing and doing it for this long. It, I think it's a unique achievement, not only within German football, but within European football. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I can't think of a club in, in the sort of contemporary era, you know, the last decade or so, let's just say, that has done more with less in the top five, you know, leagues in Europe. It's It's... It is truly stunning. And, 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 you know, this win in truth puts them on 30 points within two points of Dortmund, within six points of the Champions League places. <laughs> I know that, that they don't always make as much out of as little as they produce this weekend. I mean, as you said, I agree. This is not the best of Freiburg despite their win, but it's still astonishing to me just, just how much they're able to do. All right. Let, let's talk about another worrying loss from a team that, that is desperate to get back up into the top four. That's uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach. They lost at home in the Rhine Derby. That's just the second time they've done that in the last 12 years. As with the, the, the younger Borussia Dortmund, that is, uh, this was a largely self-inflicted result, I think. These two sides traded deflected goals in the first 15 minutes. A uh, very tight affair for the remainder of that first half. And uh, in the second half, Stefan Leina played a really bad pass uh, when he was being put under pressure at the edge of his own box. And then uh, Elvis Rexbachai, who had scored the first one, of course, for Cologne, uh, uh, picked off that ball, ran in, and, you know, put it through Jan Zoma's legs uh, to give the Billy Goats the lead that they held on to. 
I want to just crack this one open with uh, a listener question from Ahmad Balbaid uh, in Atlanta. He just asks, what is up with Gladbach? Well, I mean, going into this match, things were actually looking quite bright. Gladbach had taken 14 out of possible 18 points from the six previous matches. So this was actually a match that was setting them up to gap back into, you know, that run for that running for the Champions League places. It's it's sort of like a banana peel match, this, because Marco Rosa decided to change his team on three positions, and he is, you know, he's sort of changed and changed and changed his side and never kept the same starting 11 in place ever since the new year. And, um, I mean, he said it himself before the match when he was interviewed by Skype, where he said, if we win, I'll be the rotation champion. If we lose, I'll be the one who's cost us the win by making too many changes. So he cost them the win by making too many changes. Yes, you could say that. But what you also could say is that, again, like the, with the mistake by hits, which coach on earth is ever going to plan with such a silly misplaced pass as the one liner played? I mean, that it's not about tactics. It's just about a, egregious individual error. Yeah, well, and also to be fair, the pass that he got, I think it was from Christoph Kama, was not not the greatest either. It definitely no, was a well, bit of a hospital ball, like where he's just sort of, you know, when you get the ball and it's like, oh, okay, something bad is going to happen. I'm either going to play a bad pass myself or someone's going to take it straight off of me. Like, he, he was played into trouble, I would have to say. Yeah, indeed. I mean, it's it's sort of like... One pass by Kramer shouldn't have played liner then doesn't doesn't make things b- better by by playing placing the ball in Rajpajai's feet and um, well I mean it's it's sort of like Gladbach are playing Wolfsburg next week and uh, that is going to to show their true character you know if they want to get into the Champions League places they have to stop making silly mistakes in matches against sides like Köln and they have to pick up points against sides like Wolfsburg. And, and that's going to be true test of their character. But hey, uh, we mentioned Reg Bazaar uh, uh, quickly. Uh, before we forget, we should mention that he's now on five goals and two assists for the Billy Goats this season, which I think makes makes him their most valuable player. And he's, I, I don't think he's ever scored more than one or two goals per season before this season. And uh, that in itself is, uh, is a great return for, for a guy who, who really seems to find a stride in the Bundesliga this year. Yeah, yeah, he's become a player who you actually look for his name on, on the team sheet and, and other teams I think are beginning to sort of realize they have to sort of contend with him. It also makes a little bit of sense to me that um, you know if you've scored five goals for a, a team like Cologne who don't score a ton of goals, you're really important. That's, that's, a, that's a full quarter <laughs> Of, of the goals that they have scored <laughs> this season. Okay, you mentioned their game against uh, Wolfsburg coming up next week. Wolfsburg, of course, one of the two sort of hottest teams among the uh, you know top four challengers. We'll be talking about them in a moment. But first, I, I do want to talk about uh, Eintracht Frankfurt, who I, yes, I am crazy for them right now. This I mean, this was a 3-1 win in Zinsheim for, for the Eagles. They are now unbeaten in nine games. Uh, Philip Kostic, probably the man of the match here, he um, you know scored the first goal with a nice sort of you know darting shot uh, on the floor. He set up the third goal in you know, truly like, you know, audacious, imperious style. He was, you know, running the ball up the left, made space for himself with a couple of, you know, crafty cutbacks, and then finally served up this cross for Andre Silva that was just like, 
it was like silver service, you know, silver service. Ha ha ha. But it was perfect. I mean, it was one of those, those crosses. And like, believe me, I, <laughs> I can talk your ear off about how much I hate crosses because so, so many players do them so poorly and how often it's just a wasted thing to do with the ball. But like, when you got Philip Costage, you can do that. You can. Tell him to cross it all day. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, indeed. Um, well, we talked about Philip Kostic uh, on our English Woche Conference episode because we actually had a listener question about where's Kostic's goal production been? Where have all the assists been? And um, ever since we, you know, answered that question by Vega Grundum, uh, it, it turns out that he actually started to find his feet and he's scored goals like the one against Arminia Bielefeld, which had the lowest XG of all goals uh, on that match. Day. He took a recording and, of yeah. that podcast and he pinned it to his locker and he's been, you know, sort of giving double birds to it ever since. Yeah, probably. And so, Vega, you should take credit. For, for what's going on with Kostic and I know that you're a Frankfurt fan so you probably would like that too so yeah I, I think that that is yeah that is basically one of the one of the great stories of, of the Rückrunde so far and uh, when, when you look at Frankfurt these days nine matches without a loss seven wins two draws and you just wonder what if Jovic would have returned at the start of the season not during the winter break what if if the team had been slightly better and, you know, they had like this run of five draws in a row or something? What if that team would have been slightly better at taking its chances during those those matches? Where would they be? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, they, they're, they're 12 whole points off the top of the league. But, man, seeing this team, this team that's like sort of kind of – you know, they, they've been building pretty slowly toward this over the last several years. Like this team has come together in a nice gradual fashion, I would have to say. And seeing them play as well as they are and having them sort of, you know, ride the back of a, you know, we haven't talked about Andre Silva enough because he's, you know, phenomenal at this point. He's the, he's the striker outside of, you know, the big two. Let's just say we've talked about, you know, uh, Bobby and Erling enough this season, and we've we've you know flirted with talking about uh, you know Kramerich and uh, Weghorst as as our you know number three guys. I think you know Andre is 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 making a case for himself. He is the striker who I would be most scared of uh, outside of those guys at the moment because he his accuracy his you know, he puts you know shots on frame at a ridiculous rate and. You know, even in games where he hasn't looked particularly good. I mean, Christ, last week against Hertha when, you know, he was really quiet for the whole first half and more. And then just like struck like a little dagger. Mm. Anyway, what I was getting back to is... That, is the, um, the fact that Silva is a platinum striker. Yeah, yeah, he is a platinum striker. <laughs> I don't want the silver package. I want the platinum package. <laughs> yeah, but it, it kind of... It makes me nostalgic to see a team like this who's both sort of the product of, of gradual growth that has a hot striker and, you know, also it reminds me of those teams back in the late aughts and early teens, like back before Bayern just won the league every year. I mean, I'm thinking about like Stuttgart 2007 or, or Wolfsburg uh, 2009 mm. where like – you know, if you get a really good solid team and like either Mario Gomez or, you know, Grafic Jekko goes crazy, like you can win the league. And like 
it makes me so frustrated that Frankfurt started so slow this season because they're really good and they're really fun to watch. And I, I would love it if they were a team who could actually contend for a title, but they're just, you know. Yeah, I mean, we, we talked about the, them being not effective enough and them having not scored nearly as many goals as the XG would suggest they should have. And then, you again, you have Bayern, who've scored a full 13 or 14 goals more than the XG suggests that they should have. And I think that is where there is, that is the difference between Bayern and any team currently looking good in the Bundesliga. Bayern, they... You know, they, they have dreadful matches like they had on this weekend. And suddenly you have Kumal coming up with uh, a goal that has an XG of below 0.02. And, you know, with that sort of... With, you know, when you start tucking away those chances even... Yeah, a 1 in 50 chance. Yeah. You're probably, probably going to win the championship and you're probably going to win enough matches. And that's just it. I mean... Frankfurt, they, they they don't have tucked away in nearly enough of these chances compared to Bayern to be up there with them, sadly enough. All right, let's talk quickly about uh, Bayer Leverkusen. They were 5-2 winners at home to uh, VfB Stuttgart. It was not only a good sign, I think, for them to to get a win, uh, considering how you know they hadn't done enough of that lately, but to get back to that free scoring form that they found in, in December. I mean, I think they went through, you know, counting, you know, Champions League cup matches, you know, league matches. Didn't they, they went through a stretch where they had like seven games in a row where they scored three or more goals. Like they were just like banging people. And that's kind of what was going on in this game. I mean, you know, Peter Bosch said himself after the game that like, if we had just put away our chances a little bit better in the first half, we would never have had even a moment of, of having to worry about this. Cause let's face it, when they, when it was 2-1 early in the second half and there was that <clears throat> uh, penalty shout that didn't come to anything, it could have gone a different way maybe, but I'm not buying that. Leverkusen were just too good. Yeah, at that point, I would agree. But then again, psychologically speaking, you know, getting that 2-2 goal, even when you've been 2-0 up and you've been the better side for, you know, 53 of those 56 minutes, that is a huge blow. At that point, you feel like everything is going against you. So in that sense, you cannot really know if that if a 2-2 goal would have, you know, meant that Leverkusen still would have worked out victoriously. But Yes, if if they would have continued in the same vein, they definitely would have. But um, you know, you never know. I mean, it's it's what Thomas Müller, uh, in all his wisdom, he coined the term Spielglück, which means that you 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 need to have a bit of luck in certain situations within the match in order to get the results you desire to get. Because once you don't get that penalty in a situation where where it could go either way and you know, once your opponent scores from, uh, you know, right in the aftermath, you're suddenly, it suddenly feels like you're two goals more down than you should have been. And and that's precisely what happened here. I mean, let's just walk through that situation. I mean, there's a corner kick swung in. Kalasic, he finishes, he tries to finish on goal and uh, the ball pretty much hits the hand of Timothy Fusa-Manzar, I think. And his arms in such a position that you would think, well, 
it's not really that clear cut because it's not like he has his arms stretched out in sort of a cross Jesus like position. But, you know, it's clear enough that you could say, yes, this is a penalty. But what happens? The ref doesn't give it. Game. Match continues. And instead of getting the penalty that could have provided a 2 2 goal for Stuttgart, Bailey scores 3 1. And at that point, you think, well, that is just too massive a blow for Stuttgart to recover, rather than too massive a blow for Leverkusen to recover. Yeah, yeah, and and, and something that I found a little bit interesting in in the wake of this is, you know, obviously uh, Stuttgart were, were pretty upset about this. I mean, most notably, I think Sven Mislintat, their their sporting director, you know, was quite harshly critical of the uh, penalty not being given after the game. But you know, even leaving that side of it aside. I mean, this, this, this was a big story in German media. And, you know, you have all these follow-up stories asking both the on-field referee and the uh, the referee in, you know, the Kölner Keller, the, the, the basement in Cologne, what they were thinking. And, you know, the, 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 the VAR referee decided that there was enough of a gray area in terms of, you know, how close the ball was between, you know, leaving, you know, the Stuttgart player, then hitting the Leverkusen player in the arm, the position of the arm, all the factors. And he decided that there was not a clear and obvious enough error for him to demand that the on-field referee take a look at the monitor, which... But, you know, but, but that's, that's yeah. just it, though. I know where you're going. Um, I like we've it. We've been told that intention or, you know, the distance from ball to hand doesn't really matter. The speed at, what the, at which the ball comes doesn't really matter. They've like sh- HiFab has shown us like these silhouettes and said, okay, if the ball, if the hands or arms are placed at this point of the silhouette, which is pretty pretty much close to the body, you have like two inches. Uh, you know, your arms can be two inches removed from the body. If your arms aren't placed there, it's a penalty no matter what. And you know, we've seen so many harsh calls in the Premier League, in the Bundesliga, in all leagues. And suddenly we're like having a referee who says, well, you know, you have to take certain other factors into account. It's it's starting to become a farce. I'm sorry, and um, I, I understand Sven Mislintard, and I have to say, yes, uh, you know, if we are, if many referees have all their own interpretation of what the handball rule is like, we're not going to get anywhere, and uh, you know, to add to that, whilst the referee who was in the in the basement in Cologne says, "Well, there were it was too much, it was too much of a grey area." Lutz Wagner, the guy who's in charge of the uh, refereeing education of, at the DFB, he said, "Yeah, this should have been a penalty," but he too was on the page that the mistake wasn't egregious enough to and clear enough for VAR to step in. But then again, isn't a penalty, you know, a missed call on a penalty? Egregious enough in itself, even though the mistake wasn't too big. Yeah, and I also find I don't know. I I understand that you don't want to totally undermine the authority of the the referee on the pitch. That you know that makes some sense to me. But at the same time, I don't think that that you should necessarily have to hit the threshold of clear and obvious mistake to just say to the guy, oh, you know, have another look at that. You know, see what you think. Have another, have another look and see what you think. What's the harm? And, 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 and kind of creating that very high bar at times, I think makes the, um, 
the decision-making process seem, you know, unnecessarily, you know, grave or weighty. It's just like, you know, if there's any, any sort of confusion or any sort of like, this looks not so good, just go look at it again, see what you think. And I don't know. I mean, it's, (laughs) it's a really frustrating topic because ultimately I get the impulse to want to like make decisions correctly and to give referees the same tools that viewers at home have. I, it, it makes sense to me to do that, but we're just not there yet in terms of coming up with a system that's satisfying. I mean, when you when you think of like the goal that Wolfsburg scored against Freiburg the other week, where you had this, I think that the, it was the goal by Brooks against Freiburg corner kick comes in and you have you know sky in germany they have like this massive sort of enlargement of a certain area where you see why one freiburg player falls over because you know there's just the slightest of touches but it's enough of a touch to have a player fall over in the box and it's a foul and the referee and the var assistant didn't spot that but i mean it took sky seven or eight minutes to come up with that sort of find to find out why one of the Freiburg players I think it was Schlotterbeck just fell over in the box because it looked sort of like what was going on why was he falling over you know it wasn't really clear from from the TV pictures that were delivered at all angles and uh, you know I mean if it takes Sky eight minutes to come up you know to technically work out what was going on we're not at a point where we can say okay we, we sort of can get rid of all goals that have been scored illegally fair enough let's let's stop talking about var i i hate talking about, about uh, refereeing decisions can we end on a high and say if you haven't watched the highlights of the match uh if it's just one goal you want to watch what's the fourth one yeah. because that goal by florian verts that team move the passing chef's kiss absolutely sublime yeah Best, best goal of the match today. Working the ball back and forth. Beautiful looping header. Yeah. Just watch it. Just watch it. All right. We are back now with part two of Talking Foosball. Uh, the part where we talk about the rest of the match day just gone. This was match day 20. I guess we should probably start off by talking about um, Wolfsburg. Wolfsburg, you know, we, we, we talk about them sometimes. Uh, it, it's kind of crazy to think that they're up in third place now considering the lack of enthusiasm that, you know, you and maybe me and many other people have about this team. But they're actually – they're becoming a lot more fun to watch. They're not just a uh, defensive sort of uh, tying up opponents in knots these days. They've got – that steady defense still. They've got a top striker, as we mentioned earlier, in Wout Weishorst. And uh, I think they've got a lot of nice complementary talent in, in midfield between Yannick Gerhardt and uh, Maxi Arnold and uh, Reed Lebaku. One thing that really stood out to me in this game, just you know, watching over the highlights again this morning before we recorded, is how much sort of commitment going forward they were showing. On some of the some of these these, you know, sort of moves they were just swarming the opposition box. They basically had, you know, four or five players in the opposition box who were all doing dangerous things and putting, putting balls in. I think that this is uh, a really good team too. I, I can't quite get that Frankfurt energy up for them, but I think they're really good. 
They are really good, and and you mentioned Riedel Baku there. Uh, he's certainly one of the unsung heroes of of the season for me, uh, most definitely. Uh, getting him from Mainz, uh, I was certainly inspired move by Jörg Schmatke, but hey, the the guys. Guy, the guy is good at spotting talents, but maybe not as good at maybe not that good at keeping up a good relationship with the coach. But yeah, Rida Baku definitely one of one of the best signings of the season. But if you have a Dutch guy in your team who scores around about forty percent of the team's goals, you're probably going to be an unsung hero all season long. Everyone's <laughs> singing the song of Weichhorst. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on the other side, uh, on the other inside Augsburg, now there's talk about Manuel Baum, Marcus Weinziel being talked about in the upper echelons of the club. People not being happy with Heiko Hörlich. And there are questions about Stefan Reuter's judgment at bringing in coaches. People are generally quite happy with the sort of players he's brought in over the years, but the coaches of late, Martin Schmidt, Heiko Hörlich, they haven't really enthused the uh, Augsburg fans and the um, board too much. So stay tuned for that because there might be some unrest coming up at Augsburg in the not too distant future. And they, they, as we talked about earlier on this show, they do have a tough ride coming up. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's interesting you mentioned that that Stefan Reuter bit. Because uh, what I was reading is, you know, considering the uh, fairly sour relationship that developed between him and Marcos Weinziel in the latter stages of, of Weinziel's tenure as coach, if they want to get their hands on Weinziel, they may have to move on from Reuter. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure that that's, that's the, the, the route they want to take. But, um, yeah, it's not looking very good. For this team, I feel like they could very easily get sucked into the goings on at the wrong end of the table. I mean, they have, I guess, a five point lead over over Bielefeld and Hertha, who are on level on points in fifteenth and sixteenth. But that could melt away pretty quick uh, in in the coming weeks. Mm, indeed. All right, let's talk now about uh, RB Leipzig and their three nil win over Stuttgart. You know, I struggle to to. to- to draw that many interesting conclusions from this because it was pretty much exactly the game everyone thought it was going to be. I mean, Schalke were bad. Leipzig were good, but, you know, not outstandingly great good. They just kind of took their chances, a couple of set pieces, and, you know, Bob's your uncle. Yeah. Well, I mean, Alexander Solot still doesn't score. He didn't score against Schalke, which is a team that pretty much allows any sort of half-decent striker to score against them. Uh, but um, as for Schalke, they're, they're continu- their problems continue. I mean, Kulazinac had sort of a decent start after his return. People were sort of thinking, oh, he's the captain. Maybe he can sort of instill a bit of fire and energy within that side. But as it turns out, he's sort of dropped up down to the same sort of low performance level as his teammates. Huntelaar is out injured and his calf problems are quote by Christian Gross of great difficulty whatever that means having a calf problem of great difficulty but you know you have to question the wisdom of bringing in a 37 year old guy if he's injured all the time William who is on loan from Wolfsburg hasn't really shown himself to be any sort of improvement over the options that have been there before and additionally Mustafi made a mistake from the 1-0 goal for for RB Leipzig and is sort of, you know, in his first ever Bundesliga match is sort of, you know, it's not the most promising starts. So yeah, things things are really not looking good. And, uh, you know, if, you know, 
Yeah, let's just say now. Schalke are going down. They're going down. I mean, you cannot recover from, from this sort of... It seems... You know, the, the level of bad performances throughout the entire team, it seems endemic. Yeah, and, and the crazy part is, I, I look at this team sheet. You mentioned uh, most of the players already. I look at these team sheet and... Knowing what these players are capable of or have been capable of either at Schalke or elsewhere, it's just a stumper that they have conjured up such a bad, bad season with, with, you know, really quite decent guys on their hands. I mean, I also, I, I too find, you know, some of these moves for, you know, you know, older, more experienced, bigger reputation players who are, let's face it, pretty well past their best to be questionable considering just how likely it is for them to be going down. I mean, you know, Skodra Mustafi, Sead Kalazinac, Klaasian Huntelar, William, these are guys who are not going to – they don't want to play Bundesliga Zwei. You know, they don't – these are not guys who, who are interested in sort of sticking by this club through thick and thin. I don't think. Uh, I could be totally wrong, but like – it just seems. I think the, the the most likely guy is probably Klaasian Huntelaar because he actually has um, he has his heart within that club. He 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 loves Schalke. I mean, you got to give him that. So does the hunter want to play against Sandhausen? Probably not, but he might in order to put things right. But the other guys probably not so much. Yep, yep. All right, we're gonna step away from the the Nick and Matt show and uh, have a brief interlude of me. And Reese uh, in in rescued from oblivion. Hello, Reese. It's good to have you back on Talking Foosball. You know, I was mistaken when we were getting together to get our call together that I somehow thought that that you were going to rescue the game from oblivion that was is basically unrescuable this week, which is to say uh, Armenia Bielefeld and uh, SV Werder Bremen. Uh, that one's going to be played at, at a later date, but you know, even your powers of rescue uh, are, are probably not not good enough to rescue that one. So anyway, we're going to be talking about Mainz versus Union Berlin. That was the one that, you know, truthfully we had decided to talk about. And this one was kind of a classic Oblivion match. Would you, would you not agree? Yeah, I mean, had that game gone ahead, we may have actually swapped it and just pretended that that was the game we were going to talk about because this one wasn't... Uh, much of a cracker, we should say. Um, I mean, it was won by a penalty in the end from French defender Moussa uh, Niakate, who, by the way, is actually he had only scored three goals in his whole career before this season. Um, and he's now scored three in his last two weeks for Mainz, which is crazy. Uh, and of course, Schlotterbeck was given uh, his marching orders after picking up two yellow cards um, towards the end of the game. There was a dogged and determined display from Mainz, and uh, they deserved their win uh, yesterday. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you mentioned uh, Nikos Schlatterbeck's uh, sending off. That's, uh, you know, it came in, what, the 54th minute, which is not a great time to get such I mean, it's better than, than the first half sending off. But uh, it, it's definitely putting your team under the gun for a very long period of the game. I mean, might certainly had the better of play here, the better of chances. But if they had been on level terms, do you think Union had more in the tank or, you know, Things aren't going so well for them at the moment, anyway. No, that's right. I think yeah, it always helps to have a to have a level playing field. But I just think Union haven't been the team that we've been seeing this season, and of course they're missing a, a number of players, most notably Cruiser, 
and uh, Becca, of course, who, who we'll come on to later, I'm sure, but a performance really that wasn't really worthy of, of anything, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Mites probably won't quarrel with the manner of result, however. I mean, this was, um, you know, this is a team that's been under the gun for a very long time. They've They've made, you know, multiple changes uh, at the coaching level, searching for an answer of how to how to pick up points. Big shakeup in sort of the uh, the the winter break, mini break, or or what have you. They you know changed the coach, changed the sporting director, changed the chairman, uh, sold a couple players, brought a couple players in on either uh, you know purchase or loan. So clearly, there's a pretty I don't know a conscious shakeup happening at Mites. Uh, do you see that going anywhere? I mean, a win. For a team in this their position, no matter how it comes, it's got to be pretty good. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Heidel's obviously come back now, and 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 Svensson's in charge. And in these six games in charge, he's managed to pick up a point at, at Dortmund, which is fantastic. Um, and they beat Leipzig, of course, and and now this win yesterday. So that's seven points from that from that game and uh, those games. Sorry. And while that may not seem that significant from possible eighteen, when you're in Mainz's position. And batting the way in the way that they are, then they, they are really crucial points, particularly at this stage of the season. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. And as long as teams like uh, Schalke and uh, Bielefeld, Hertha, you know those teams who are down in their neighborhood, let's just say, uh, st- aren't picking up points, those are, are especially valuable points. Let's let's sort of flip over and talk about Union for a moment. They, of course, are, are a lot of people's sort of you know second team or a team that the you know people like to see do other. They're known as something of a cult club, uh, self-styled anyway. The good narrative about Union that, that really started the season when they were sort of pushing for European or even Champions League places for a while, the airs kind of come out of that balloon. It's no wins in their last four games, only two goals scored in those games. You know, where are things going wrong for this for this team? I think things have been going wrong since Cruz has been injured and in, since uh, he got injured in that uh, Berlin derby back in December. Um, as you mentioned, there's, there's no uh, wins in four now. Uh, and only a few weeks ago, they were in the top four and people were, were considering them for Europe. But at the same time, there's still only three points off of the European places. And at the start of the season, had you said to, to many Union fans that you'd going to be in the top half of the Bundesliga at this stage of the season, 12 points clear of the relegation playoffs, I think that the vast majority would be absolutely over the moon with that. I think just staying in this, the division was the target this season. And many Titlands are good to go down, particularly after the loss of uh, Sebastian Anderson. Yeah, it seems like um, you know while they were able to find a way to to continue picking up points immediately after Max Cruz's injury, which is you know getting on two months ago now, taking away Geraldo Becker as well, who was one of their other big sort of open play threats, has made them a pretty one dimensional attack right now. I mean, other than than set pieces. They are just not generating chances very much. Um, let's let's look ahead though at you know where they're going in the next several games. Um, to me, it looks like a stretch that's going to be pretty decisive in terms of whether they can get back into that European picture. We got Schalke at home, Freiburg away, Hoffenheim at home, Bielefeld away. 
Cologne at home. That stretch right there is five games that other than Freiburg, Freiburg is sort of closer to their neighborhood of the table, but all those other teams are significantly worse than them, at least uh, on, on, by, by the, by the table. How do you like their chances of sort of buzzsawing through that group or maybe, Maybe this uh, this slide is going to continue as long as some of those key attacking players uh, can't p- take part. Yeah, I think this is a fantastic chance for them. Um, those games that you mentioned, Schalke, was, I mean, almost everyone can beat them nowadays. Um, and those other teams who are not doing so well and, and perhaps short of form. But again, if, if, if Union do pick up a, a vast amount of points from that game, then all of a sudden they're, they're back in the top four that we were talking about. Such is the crazy nature of the Bundesliga. And as you mentioned before about the attack, they're now relying on Aouni and, and Tusha up front. Um, and it's definitely in this avenue that they're facing the problems at the moment because it should be noted that they've got one of the best defences in the division this season, uh, better than that of Bayern Munich, in fact. Yeah, indeed, indeed. I mean, I don't want to go overboard on my criticisms of Union. They have, you know, not picked up a win in their last four, but, you know, They've lost those games 1-0, 1-0, 2-1, and a 1-1 draw against Gladbach. So this, their defense is definitely keeping them in games. It's just, uh, it can be a tough way to, to pick up points if, if you don't score goals. Yeah, exactly. I agree. I mean, they've already scored, they've let, conceded 25 goals in 20 games. Bayern conceded 26 in 20. Uh, and they're not far off, actually. The best in divisions, obviously, Leipzig and, and I think Wolfsburg. I've only conceded 19. All right. Well, maybe, maybe, just maybe next week when you rescue a game from oblivion, we'll, we'll, we'll get more than one goal in the mix, just so there's a little bit more to talk about. <laughs> yeah, hopefully we, we can only uh, wait and see. Let's say goodbye, and when we get off air, we'll spin the wheel of fortune and figure out which game to rescue. <laughs> see you next week. All right, so we're back. Huh. We were going to talk about uh, Armenia Bielefeld and and your boys uh, Werder Bremen here, but uh, that didn't really go off as planned, did it? No, it turns out Bielefeld doesn't exist. Or was it snow? I don't remember. It's one of the two. Sure, sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, this was not uh, the only game uh, across Germany, and and it seems actually this this whole you know uh, Westphalian area was particularly uh, vexed by the, the snowstorms. The second division game involving uh, SA Paderborn also canceled on the weekend. Yeah. Uh, how, how did the weekend feel without without action from, from the, the fish cupfer? Strange. Strange. Utterly strange. I mean, I, I was working the evening shift on, on Sunday, uh, which is, you know, particularly painful uh, when I have to do that because uh, obviously uh, being a nurse, I'm not precisely in a position where I'm, I'm a, a, a sort of job where i just can sit down and you know turn on television for 90 minutes i mean i can check scores i can go in on you know on social media and watch highlights and such every now and then but uh that's pretty much the extent of what to which i can follow the match and having the match cancelled is sort of you know it's not the end of the world but it feels utterly utterly strange because you know with cologne winning and you know other teams sort of starting to maybe get closer in the table as you know minds have started winning you're sort of thinking oh well i would have liked three points on this weekend but then again game in hand still five points down to the relegation playoff spot not too bad a situation to be in i i can say that actually uh, i probably could have done without <laughs> um 
could have done without Friday night's game uh, featuring uh, Hertha and Bayern München. Not that I think Hertha were bad in the game. They weren't. I think they actually were probably worth uh, a draw in the game. But um, well, Matthias Cunha didn't sleep well off. No, I know. He, he had a chance to, to, to seal that draw with what? I mean, 10 minutes left, five minutes left? I don't know. And, and, and fair play to him. I, I actually thought in Pal Dardai's comments after the game talking about Cunha's miss, that, that sort of chip that he put wide of the goal with, you know, Manuel Neuer rushing, rushing onto him. Dardai said, you know what? I, I don't, it doesn't bother me at all. He made a decision quickly. He sort of took his shot, didn't go in. Uh, it would have bummed me out if he hadn't actually gotten his shot off or if he had sort of, you know, lingered over the decision and sort of done a, made a, made a, uh, half measure out of it. In this case, you know, he took a shot. He didn't make it, whatever. But if only the snow, which was coming down uh, in in that match, had started just a few hours earlier, maybe, you know, the morning instead of the evening, maybe the, the grounds crew would have just been completely overwhelmed. And, you know, maybe Bayern's terrible, terrible, tear-jerking experience at uh, Berlin Brandenburg <laughs> International Airport <laughs> wouldn't have happened after the game. As as we know, Bayern got the win. Kingsley Coman scored this, this you know deflected goal sort of midway through the first half uh, to, to to get them uh, the three points. After, of course, Rudi Jarstein uh, had had saved a penalty from Robert Lewandowski, something that hadn't happened in you know donkey's years. Bayern feeling really good about themselves. They had even you know uh, uh, pushed the kickoff time of this game up a half an hour to make sure they could get the airport in time. The best laid plans, man. <laughs> The best laid plans. Pick it up. Pick up the story for us. So yes, the the match was moved half an hour, so Bayern could uh, you know get to the airport quickly enough and um, get onto their plane and get off to Qatar fairly quickly. And Hansi Flick said even after the match, now that we've won, it's going to be a pleasant flight, which was the the best quote of the match day in my book. But as it turns out, there was a de-icing needed of of the plane, and that took some time, and that took. Long enough time to push the uh, takeoff time beyond the stroke of midnight. The stroke of midnight. And after the stroke of midnight, night flights aren't allowed in Germany. They're forbidden, as long as it's not a matter of national importance or security. So, for instance, if you want to fly much-needed COVID vaccines from, say, Munich to Berlin, because Berlin needs them more, yes, you can fly at night. As it turns out, the Berlin-Brandenburg airport saw that, you know, a bunch of millionaires competing in the Club World Cup weren't important enough, uh, which got to Uli Hoeneß. Yeah, I, I, apparently Uli Hoeneß didn't see things that way. Yeah, he said, it's you know, we compete at the Club World Cup. It's a great thing. We're representing Germany. We're representing Germany, yes. And, um, you know, I mean, ask any f- fan of Darmstadt 98 are you, go- are you looking forward to the Club World Cup? Are you looking forward to that match against Al-Ali? And they're probably going to say, nah, I'm just watching Westworld or something. But I don't care. And, you know, because the Club World Cup, it's just one of those FIFA constructs that is pretty much designed to make FIFA richer and in the process enrich some big clubs within world football. And... The Club World Cup is to good football what your mate's band is to great music. I mean, your mate, you know, the guy you've met in college and he says he's a band 
and you don't know the guy well enough and you think, okay, yeah, I, I gotta go. And, you know, he describes it as his art project where the soul of art is explored and you go to the pub and all they do is play the most awful cover version of To Do Run Run. That's what the Club World Cup is to football and that was his band is to music it's just shit yeah but but i want to push back just a little <laughs> and only because only because i i had the totally you know fortuitous experience of being i, I happened to be in morocco back in 2013 when when bayern were taking part in the uh the club world cup there I didn't, you know, as I said, it was fortuitous. I had not planned this. Uh, I didn't realize it was happening until uh, I, I got there, and there was I saw the, you know, the the, the crazy Bayern fan who has the big kutta that like goes all the way down to his yeah. ankles, and uh, you know, that guy. He, I saw him at the airport, and I was like, okay, something something's going on here. And then I saw more Bayern fans at the uh, the big square that they have in in Marrakesh. It's clearly a really nice day out. It's a nice weekend away. Uh, just as, you know, going to see your mate's band, is it can be a, a decent night out. It's, there's, you're not necessarily going to draw a lot of enjoyment from what is ostensibly the purpose of the, of the endeavor. Uh, the football's not going to be good, but like, you know, it's, it's probably going to be a fun time hanging out with people in a weird location. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not too fussed about that really. I, you know, it's, it's probably fun, fun weekend or week for, for the fans. Um, you know, my, my concern is mostly about this being labeled as a matter of national importance to Germany by the Bayern officials. Because, I mean, yes, the football is not great at the Club World Cup. It's not a tournament that's taken seriously by anyone, really. And, yeah, it's, it's just it's just a way of enriching people at FIFA and some clubs. And uh, that in itself, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not a mas- matter of national importance. And, by the way, hey, we've got a pandemic going on. I mean, what, what's what's more important here? Is, is, is it that Bayern are, you know, allowed to travel at midnight and that rules are broken for, you know, Bayern because they certainly seem like they feel entitled to that because, well, what have they done? They're Bayern. Or is it more important that we actually have travel restrictions? Because this might be the actual, I mean, that, that in the day and age of a pandemic, it might be the actual, you know, scandal of our times that... We are shipping around footballers internationally over borders for the Champions League, for the Club Club World Cup tournament in the day and age of a pandemic. It's not necessarily a great look for football, is it? Yeah, yeah, especially when you have, um, as as things are, are sort of shaping up for the next, you know, coming rounds of the Champions League, Europa League, etc. You know, you're getting this absurd situation where, you know, countries where there's, you know, a comparative abundance of caution, let's just say, like Germany. Countries where, you know, the government has taken a somewhat stronger stance about, you know, public health restrictions and or uh, exposure to new variants or whatever. Those are the countries that aren't letting people in. And so, you know, the countries where things are going a little worse, you know, whether that be Britain or or elsewhere, um, they are letting teams in and those teams are going wherever they want. And now Germany are, are seeking third party venues, in some cases, uh, countries where things are worse, like in Hungary. So you're instead of like, instead of like playing by the, the, the sort of more 
prudent and positive set of rules by countries like Germany, you know, football is just seeking out the sort of loosest venues it can to, to stage these games, which, you know, could it, it just doesn't make any sense to me that what's going on. I mean, thing is, you could have you could have done in sort of a bubble league. I mean, the Bundesliga, Serie A, the Premier League—they're sort of bubble leagues. I mean, the the strict rules for what people can and cannot do, and people will tell you, like Florian Kofeld had an injury. That you know, my kids haven't been allowed to have any friends over, and uh, I'm not meeting any of my friends. What I'm doing 24/7 now is being a football coach, and I'm I'm not being social. I'm not going out in the streets of Bremen. I'm not going to cafes. I'm not doing any of that because right now my job is to stay healthy and be the coach of Werder Bremen. And I mean, sure, with that attitude, if that is kept all around the league, you can sort of do football at a. You can defend doing football on a national level, but once it comes to crossing borders and travel, which includes which naturally includes staying over in hotels and flying and such, and you suddenly increase the number of close contacts by necessity. That's when you have trouble. And I mean, Hoffenheim are probably the best case because, you know, they, they've had 10 COVID cases and most of them have come into, after international duty. So, yeah. But, you know, we've, we've talked about it uh, long enough. You know, you... Do you want me to finish off with a Herta Sunshine story before we get too much out of hand? Yeah, why not? Tell me, tell me a nice story. All right, uh, Rune Jarstein, he he's back in the Hertha girl, as you know, uh, which is a sunshine story in itself from a Norwegian perspective. He actually told um, Norwegian newspaper Verdensgang VG uh, that he talked with his daughter about how he was going to approach a possible penalty by Lewandowski, and he said. He said that, you know what, I told my daughter that I was sort of trying to make him believe that I was going to jump into one corner and then go for the other. And that's precisely what he did. And he kept out that penalty that he had caused himself, to be fair enough. But he kept it out. And uh, after the match, his daughter, Lena, was overjoyed and saying, Dad, that's exactly what we talked about on our walk the night before. So, uh, yeah, Rooney Jarstein, not only great keeper, Great dad, too, as it turns out. Excellent. Keeps him, keeps his word. All right. Sunshine for Hertha. Let's let's keep the positive vibes going. Let's hope that next week uh, we can see a little more of, uh, you know, Radonjic, Kadira, maybe some results from, uh, from the Stuttgart game. Anyway. Okay, that is it for this edition of Talking Foosball, which was produced, as it always is, by Aiden Rantoul. It's really good to see you again, Nick. Uh, you know, this is... A great part of my week, I have to say. It is. It's sort of like, you know, what the Germans call the Schaum Corner? Mm, mm, you mm-hmm. know, that, that... It's the big, frothy yeah. head on your beer. Precisely. <laughs> Nick, the poet himself, you can follow him on Twitter, at Normusings. Uh, don't forget, of course, to listen to Talking Foosball's historic Match Day Moments series. That's just one of the many uh, pieces of uh, recurring content we have over on our Patreon page, you know, patreon.com slash talkingfoosball. You can get tons of stuff over there. Support us uh, with just a few dollars, quid, whatever, a month. Uh, if you want to hit us up on Twitter, it's at Talking Foosball. I am at Mr. Matt Herman. Uh, subscribe to this pod. Rate this pod. Talk this pod up to the skies to all your friends, at least the ones who like this sort of thing, German football. Bis zum nächsten Mal, y'all.